Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. Today I'm starting a new series and um, I'm excited as well because if you were here over the summer, we spent a, a lot of time in First John. I think we spent like 11 weeks or something. And uh, this is actually my favorite book uh, in the New Testament that we're going to be starting a series on, and it's called the Book of James. Um, the Book of James, in my opinion, is once again, I'm going to get into the, the nitty-gritty details of it um, so that you guys fully understand where it comes from. But a lot of the times in church, in, in church and in kind of the wider culture of churches, there's a topic that is picked. And then from that topic is ultimately we build out a, our uh, scripture or portions of scripture that support a belief system related to the topic. But what we'll be doing is more expository in which every week we're going to take just, uh, we're going to go about 10 to 15 verses at a time. And we're just going to sit in it all the way up till Advent. So it's going to be uh, a few weeks um, in the book of James. So you guys are just going to have to, uh, you know, bear with it if you don't like that book. Anyway, uh, but today what I'm talking about, and I've titled it James Part One, and, and the slogan, if you will, is wait, what am I again? Wait, what am I again? Now, some historical context for us as we start to explore James. If you didn't know, James is the half-brother of Jesus, but not only is he the half-brother, he was a skeptic. Um, it's, It's widely recognized and believed that James was not a follower of Jesus in his ministry. He was actually one of those guys that probably hated him because he had a perfect sibling. How many of you guys have a perfect sibling in here? I do. Name's Lish. It's like one of those where, of course, G- of course, James didn't support Jesus' ministry because Jesus was definitely probably putting him to shame his entire life. Um, but not only that, what we see is that post-resurrection, it's like, wait a second, actually, if somebody can rise from the dead, then that might actually be something that I should be aware of. And not only aware of, but start to follow and pursue. So with that, James is converted. Not only is he converted, but he becomes an esteemed leader in the church of Jerusalem. The church of Jerusalem is is the first body of followers of the way. At that time, the Christian term wasn't introduced yet. That term was introduced in Antioch later on in the book of Acts. At that point, they were just followers of the way of Jesus. And he's the very first church leader, centralized figure of that church in Jerusalem as Peter leaves it to go try to start churches all over. Now, here's what's even more interesting about James is that James did not just oversee times of incredible explosion in the church. He actually is somebody that walked through quite a bit of trial. What I mean by that is he actually oversaw the the church in Jerusalem as it was going through famine as it was going through persecution, as it was going through religious explosion in terms of like growth, but also defection and all of these different things culminating with the fact that James is the very first apostle to be martyred. 
See, Stephen was martyred, but he wasn't at the apostle status. James stuck his boots in the ground in Jerusalem, and it cost him his life. So the full spectrum, somebody who had the proximity to literally watch Jesus' life, his entire life, as well as somebody who saw the rise and the fall, the resurrection and the, the, that, that coming to life again, but also the explosion in the church and then also the, the persecution that then scatters the church and then ultimately the famine and the provision, the life, and then the martyrdom. I would say that James has a full picture of what it means to be a follower of God. If I were to put James in a blender and just boil it down to you basics, I would say it's a hint of wisdom proverbs with a side of beatitudes with a little salt bay of hyper-practicality all blended up. And that is what we are going to steep in as a church for the next lot of weeks. So with that, I want to read. And once again, today is James part one. Wait. What am I again? James 1.1 1, 1 says this. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. We are now done reading from James today. <laughs> Some of you guys think I'm kidding. I'm not. What you have to realize is this. James is actually the very first book and there's a wide consensus on this among scholars. It's the very first book written because we know when James died. And so ultimately we can backtrace to the persecution that scattered in James' writing in Jerusalem based off that scattering persecution to keep people strong. So what you have to understand is in the New Testament and in the Bible per se is there is a law of firsts. Meaning that anytime you see something referenced for the first time, you should trace it back to its origins. Now, James is not only the first book of the New Testament. This is the first verse of that first book. Now, what we're going to get into now is a, is a, a functionality of the words that he chose and how it reciprocated through history. Let's read. 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1 says this, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God and, sa and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Revelations 1.1, 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Jude 1.1, 1, 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Bondservant is showing up all over the place. Now, where did it start? James 1.1. Why is it important? Because from that point on, all of the apostles are using it as their introduction. Paul, a bondservant. Peter, a bondservant. Jude, a bondservant. Timothy, a bondservant. These aren't just like randos in the New Testament. These are the pillars of the New Testament faith. 
a bondservant. Now, when you actually start to research, if you didn't know this, um, I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of Bible translation, but I'm going to give you like a 20-second kind of overview here. There's something called word-to-word, and then there's ultimately phrase-by-phrase, and then there's what they would summarizes like, I guess you could say a summary within your translations. So the most accurate translation technically is a one we wouldn't teach on on Sunday, but if you wanted to study it, it's actually called the interlinear, in which when when you read the word, it has the Greek and the Hebrew definitions underneath it. So as you read, you can follow it in original language. It's extremely deep. I'm not saying you should do that. What we teach from here is the NASB, which is the most accurate word to word translation and that's typically what I preach from. Now, what am I saying is in the NSB, see, there's a difference in some of the language. When you start looking at other points of Scripture and the Bible, what you find is that in the Scripture and in the Bible, some of them call it servant, some of them call it slave. However, the most accurate translation call it a bond servant. Now, the reason I tell you this is because a bond servant is not a normal word. Not only is it not a normal word, but when you start to research and break it down, what it means, you'll find that there's almost a grotesque picture attached to it. And James does it on purpose. Let's read Exodus 21. It says this, 21, 1 through verse 2 and 5 through verse 6. Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But on the seventh year, he shall go out as a free man without payment. Verse 5, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him permanently. Now, once again, let's back this up. James starts the first verse of the first book of the New Testament to all the churches, and he says, hey, don't forget, I'm a bondservant. And then it becomes the thing that defines, and people are hearing bondservant, and they're going, why is he saying that? Because the picture of bondservant is one where a slave is about to be set free and would rather be a slave the rest of their life serving their master than be free on their own. Why is he saying that? And not only why is he saying it, why doesn't he just say slave? Why is he saying bondservant? Because slave is essentially, we know, indentured servitude. However, bondservant, nail my ear to your door? Once again, what am I trying to say? This grotesque picture is something that James is not just starting off his book with. This is the start of the New Testament. This is the very beginning of New Testament historically writing books. And it says, hey, my bond servants. How many of us would readily be that one that's like, yes, God, nail my ear. (laughs) What am I trying to get at today? Wait, what? What are we again? Bond servants. And once again, this is why I had to stop on John James 1.1. Because not only does James say it, Peter says it. John says it. Jude says it. 
Timothy says it. John writes again in the church to Revelation and says, hey, you guys are all it. And I want to challenge you today. What is being written and what is being proposed is a correction. Back to the level of commitment it is to choose him. Back to the depth of what it means to be a servant to the master. And so today what I want to talk about with my remaining time is I want to talk about reminders from this bond servant. And really for you today, not even reminders, but rather a self-assessment around that term. Because in this day and age, we have made it as comfortable, as convenient, and as superficial as it can get. You can show up on Sunday, hope that you really get it scratched, and then maybe carry it through the week. You can do kind of the bare basics of following Christ, however, never really fully know Him because of the depth of the commitment, not that you've chosen, but rather that we've reciprocated from the pulpit. See, this bondservant is mean. It's grotesque. It's a little grunt. It's like, that's too much. That's what James starts with. Peter, John, Timothy. Jude, Revelation, we see it woven into all of the scripture, this image of chosen servitude that has scars to show the depth of commitment. Reminders of a bondservant. The first thing is this, there is a difference in willingly paying the cost of being a servant of God and going through unforeseen difficulties. If life is difficult, it doesn't mean we forget and then walk away from the commitment we made. Rather, we must always remember the commitment he made to us. We pin our ears to the door, for he pinned his life to the cross. And I want to say this to you today. What's really sad to me is that there's a big difference between sanctification and character development and walking through difficult seasons. And what do I mean by this? I believe a lot of the times the question that needs to be asked today is ultimately why, and it's a question all of us have struggled with, whether we verbalized it or not, why do bad things happen to good people? Because in my opinion, when bad things happen to good people, there is doubt that God is good. Because the projection of why would you allow this if I'm prioritizing, if I'm loving you, if I'm pursuing you, why would I go through difficulty? And what is essentially the answer? You know, I've said this here before, but I'll never forget the first time I got asked that question. I was leading a middle school small group. And usually leading a middle school small group is anything from why is the earth round to profound questions, why do good things happen to bad people, to can I eat this other guy's toes, to literally any, I mean, it's a middle school ministry is, is the absolute crucible of if you'll make it or not. Anyway, um, but I'll never forget this because I never thought about my response. And as I never thought about my response before, I looked at this, this, this guy and I looked at him, I said, I just opened my mouth and these words flowed out. I said, the worst thing happened to the most perfect person and we're called to live his example. Why is it that we as believers, if we walk through anything difficult, we immediately start to debate 
if sanctification and character development in the image of Christ is worth it anymore? Why is it that when we come into this place and we hear and see these images of a bondservant pinning its ear to the door of its master's house, we think that we won't be asked to to, to do the same? And I want to say this to you right now. Difficult doesn't mean you get a free pass on character development and sanctification. If you've had difficult things happen to you, I am so sorry and I am empathetic to it. However, it is not a cop-out for you pressing into the development of your spiritual character. And I also got this, and I want to read it twice and just let it seep into you. Don't use what you have gone through as a crutch to not allow you to get to where you're called to. Do not use what you have gone through as a crutch to not allow you to get to where you're called to. So many people, you know, when you think about it, when I was um, two years old, I broke my leg. And uh, it's kind of funny because I was in a body cast. But my, my parents were the ones where it's like rubbed dirt on it. So my mom just put me down for a nap, not knowing that I'd fractured my femur. And then I woke up from the nap still screaming. And she was like, okay, maybe we should take him. And it was, they were so appalled that it took so long for them to bring them that CPS interviewed my parents. Because they're like, how could you not bring your kid to the ER? He's got a broken leg. But if you think about it, there was a resetting of that, an awareness of the broken leg a resetting of the broken leg, a cast to the broken leg, and then a strengthening once that cast came off. See, this is the picture of spiritual development. This is the picture of character development. Some of us, we know we have broken bones, but we would rather them heal unnaturally than actually see the full restoration power of God. What am I saying to you? Your character and spiritual development may be the thing that heals the things that you've went through, but it's going to be your choice if you're going to use the crutch or not. See, James had every excuse, in my opinion, to absolutely withdraw from being a church leader. He literally, he literally led the expansion, but at, genuinely after that beginning growth period in the Jerusalem church, it was brutal. Brutal, the persecution, the, the, everything that was coming against them, the Jewish leaders that were all up against them, the famine that hits. I mean, he had every excuse to not continue going, but he continued to. And then it cost him his life. I want to encourage you, if we have excuses as to why we can't do or why we won't keep going, at some point they'll be valid enough for us to not. But I'm telling you, leaning on a crutch won't get you to your calling. The second thing is this. Is being a slave of God more important than the freedom of man? You cannot be both the owner and the bondservant. Don't get mad at God if he tries to remind you through difficult circumstance who is the master and who is the servant. In your pursuit of freedom from all constraints, don't be surprised at some point if you're eating an apple that has larger consequences than you ever imagined. Committed service is greater than individual freedoms. Now, this whole point comes from the flat fact that Netflix just got Band of Brothers and the Pacific on it. Some of you guys don't know what it is. 
I hope you do, because it's an incredible show. But anyway, I'm like not trying to glamorize World War II history. But anyway, in this show, they actually interview a lot of the guys who were there on the, those in, insane days of loss, sacrifice, and just brutal warfare. Now, when you think about somebody who would go through something so difficult, so tough, so just, I mean, you would never want to go through, there's a bond that was forged in that difficulty, the bond of which they, if they asked, would you do it again, they would say yes, which is mind-blowing to me that you would go through something so difficult and so limited and something that is so just and want to do it again. Why? Because there's something When you choose the master and choose something bigger than yourself, what you find is there is a fulfillment that comes, a wholeness that comes. What am I trying to say to you today? I think that some people in this room don't realize that the first sin, yes, was disobedience, but it was rather, are you okay with limitation? Don't eat from this one tree because I'm making sure your free will is choosing me. But I want complete freedom. I would say this, that to have complete freedom and to have complete autonomy and to be the master and the servant, at some point you're going to end up empty. Why? Because you weren't made to build your own kingdom. You weren't made to create your own world. And what happens is, is we We buy into this illusion we have until we build the castle and we're emptier than we've ever been before, more isolated than we've ever been before, uncomfortably comfortable. What am I trying to say to you today? I want to say this about my life. I allow just enough freedom for me to be healthy, but not enough for it to be deadly. Because I remember who's whose door I pinned my ear to. And see, some of us were all about freedom in Christ, but not commitment, not cost, not sacrifice. See, we were all about walking with God in the cool of the day, but man, that apple looks good when he's not around. What am I trying to say to you today? I pray that we never get to the point where we're choosing between the freedom of a free man rather than that indentured bondservant slavery in the master's house. Would you rather have your own home or just be a servant in his? It's a paradigm in your mind when you're thinking about it. You're like, it's an easy choice. Is it though? To give up personal freedom, give up personal expression, give up the illusion of control, give up the idea that you can do it all. Man, it's, it's not as easy as you think. What we like to do is merge all these things. I have the freedom, I have the ability, I have all of the control, but man, God, yeah, I listen to you. Where's your ear pinned? The third thing is this. There is power in the picture. Outside of the master, we have nothing to live for. Outside of the work of the kingdom, we have no other existence. Outside of the work of God, we have no other reason of being and that from this place we live. A pinned ear is a pruned heart. We are called to a life of a servant on behalf of our Messiah Jesus. Your service 
should have some scars. His did. I don't find it coincidence that James starts his entire book with this provocative image. In a day and age of comfort, convenience, and consumption, this entire narrative reframes and reorients the Christian life back to service and sacrifice that brings with it a satisfaction for our souls. What am I trying to say to you today? My scars have deepened my salvation more than my successes ever have. And see, some of us, the moment that we sense something cutting deeply, we run rather than press in. Your scars will tell a story that is different than your successes ever will. Your scars will define you better than any stage, platform, or recognition man could ever get. See, what happens when you go through moments where you didn't think you would make it and you get to the other side is you look at that scar and say, wow, he got me through. See, a lot of us in our culture today, anything that's painful, anything that's difficult, anything that comes against the grain of our comfort-driven society, we run from. But we don't realize that what has been bred in difficulty becomes resilient. What has been bred in endurance becomes strength. What is bred in secret becomes what sustains. These are things that James, we're going to get into later, but I would even say to you today, do you believe that God can use your scars? Or rather, do you believe that your scars will have meaning more than your successes? And I challenge you today in that reality because I want to say to you that I pray we all get to the point in spiritual maturity when when we feel the pain, And when we feel the grit and when we feel the breaking of the waves against the foundation trying to erode our humanity and our souls, we look and say, God, I know that I'm getting stronger. I know that I need to go deeper. I know that these scars will become part of my story and my story will point to the master whose ear I have pinned myself to. You know, what's even more fascinating about the components of that Mosaic law is that uh, I was reading a a commentary and they said that uh, in culture at that time, that when it says the doorpost is actually in culture that time, typically what would happen is, is you would have like a shelf outside where your shrines were outside your doorpost so people could identify what you believed in. Now, in the Jewish community, If you know, the famous doorpost is where they shed the blood above the doorpost in Passover in which the spirit kind of left them alone and it was a plague in Egypt. Now, what's even more fascinating when it says that you're in front of God and in front of man is when you were pinning your ear to that doorpost, you were saying, I've chosen my master and not only have I chosen my master, but I've chosen him in the eyes of man and in the eyes of God. I have made a covenant. But that covenant was the scar. The covenant was the scar. What's even more wild about it is if you look at the prodigal son story, the prodigal son story is that if you remember, he said, fetch a ring, the signet ring of his family. He gave him ultimately, when he runs back to the father, he gets different components of an outfit, all that reaffirm his status. He gives him a ring. But to be a bond servant, you didn't get a ring. You got a ring in your ear. 
this ring in the ear, a symbol that, yes, I am not a son. I'm a slave. Whew. Let that sink in. Like that is, once again, when we talk about the gravity and almost grotesque nature of this narrative, you would think that, why would Peter reference it? Jude reference it. John reference it. Timothy reference it. The first verse of the first book of the New Testament. Why would this be the profound moment? Why? Because the commitment is more than you could fathom. Will you make it? The commitment isn't for a season. The commitment isn't for when it feels like it. The commitment is when there's scars included. The commitment is in front of God and in front of man. The commitment is when it is comfortable and when it is uncomfortable. The commitment is not to a time frame. The commitment is unto eternity. And so today I ask you again, what am I again? You, my friend, are a bondservant. Stand to your feet. They're going to put on the screen um, the Lord's Prayer. And this morning, as we go into another time of just one more song of worship, I pray that there would be some self-assessment happening, the level of the cost you're willing to pay, the depth of commitment that you've made, the belief in the scars. And I've been on a journey with the Lord's Prayer, and it's kind of funny because if you've noticed, it's kind of seeped in everywhere here at our church. It's, I recite it multiple times a day, and it's anytime Jesus says, pray like this, I want to make sure I'm doing that. So in our church together, as we worship, let's recite this again. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thank you.